As you know, we've been in a series looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this morning we're taking a break from that passage, that set of passages uh, that make up the Sermon on the Mount, because it's Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. But what I want to do in setting up this message is I want to remind us of a critical principle that we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount. In that series, first of all, we have been wrestling with some pretty difficult, challenging topics, haven't we? Uh, I think each sermon has been convicting for me personally and uncomfortable for me personally and apparently everybody else, but we're all in it together and we're looking at disobedience and anger and lust and marriage and divorce, oaths and retaliation and loving our enemies and generosity and selfishness and and money and anxiety, and there will be more of that when we get back to our series. Now here's the deal. Jesus gets pretty pointed about these issues because he knows that um, we get our worldview from the world, and so we have messed up thinking about these various issues, and so he needs to correct us. And, uh, you know, the, the key to understand is that to the extent that we have a false view of these issues, our lives will be limited. To the extent that we have a false view of these things, our, our lives will be less than fully human. We will not be living according to how God designed us. And God wants to bless us. He doesn't arbitrarily come up with, you know, things that might be good to do or not do. He's tr- telling us this is what it means to live consistently with who you are because you are made in my image. Right? Now, whenever he addresses, when he addresses these different issues, these critical issues, it, it, here's, here's what we need to remember. God never meant for you or me to apply these issues, to apply these values individualistically, on our own, isolated. God never meant for you to listen to these concepts, go home, and and try to apply them just by yourself. God never meant that these kingdom values were, were to be lived out isolated but in community as, as an active part of a vibrant church family together as his people. That is how we were designed to live. When Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are a city set on a hill. And the translation of you there is better understood as y'all. What Jesus is saying is, y'all are a city set on a hill. Because you can't be a city by yourself, can you? So Jesus is talking to his church. He's talking to his family. He's talking to us. 
Jesus is saying, I'm establishing a new community. I'm establishing a new city. I'm establishing a distinct group of people. I'm establishing your purpose as God's new city to live out these kingdom values together to show the world what it means to be the people of God. So, if your identity is more individualistic, to the extent that it is, it's not biblical. It's not according to how God designed you and his people. We are a new city within our city. St. Augustine said that there's the city of God and the city of man. And he did a lot of writing about that. And, and we learn that Jesus calls us to be God's new city where he has placed us in our corner of the world along with the rest of his people. And he calls us that in the world we are to be an alternate community, a counterculture, a city set on a hill that lives in a radically different way. A new city that demonstrates to the world what it means to live in light of God's truth, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So that's why we do things like have home groups or crowded houses. That's why we have our, our gospel DNA groups. And that's why uh, we do what we can to develop relationships so that we can live this out together. And here's another thing I want to point out as, as we're kind of gearing up here. We learn better from each other, especially if we are diverse. We don't learn nearly as well if we're just learning from people that agree with us or that are like us or have the same background as us. It's, it's totally limited if, if we just hang out with people who are like us. We grow and we mature better if, if we are together and learning from each other, people who are different from each other. And we'll have a fuller perspective, fuller wisdom. The world, that's different than the world. Because you look around at the world, you see really polar opposites. They, they are all for one and one for all and totally against these people who are all for one, one for all, who are totally against these people because they're, li they're just completely like each other. And they don't learn from each other. They war against each other. That's how the world works. God didn't call us to be like that. God called us to be diverse, to have a fuller understanding of who God is and who he's called his people to be. I won't learn Jesus' kingdom values like I should with people who are only like me. That is just more individualism. And individualism is not characteristic of the kingdom of God. It is not in the list of fruit of the spirit you find in Galatians. God's kingdom values are lived out and learned in diversity. That can't happen if you're by yourself or only hanging out with people who are like yourself. God's kingdom values are lived out and learned collectively, as part of a family, corporately, not just individually. So, now, for today, for Palm Sunday, we are going to be looking at the issue of greatness. 
Now that doesn't, probably doesn't get you all stoked and excited when you hear that. But we need to look at, take a very serious look at what is true greatness. What is it that makes a people great? What is greatness in King Jesus' new city? In the city of man, we usually think of great entertainers. We, we think of great business people. We think of great uh, uh, football teams. We think of a great military, right? Uh, those are the people the world values. Those are the people that the world honors. I mean, if we come across a, a celebrity or something, We'll ask them to write their name on a piece of paper so we can take it home and cherish it and show our friends. And we, you know, it's an autograph. And it could have, it could be worth a hundred dollars or whatever it is. And that, that just means that, that, that we are honoring them above other people, right? I mean, if I went up to Jacob, if I went up to Jacob Perry and ask, man, I'm so glad to see you. Can I have your autograph? He'd be like, well, I know I was in that uh, documentary called Calvinist for about five seconds, but do you really want my autograph? You know, it's, 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 that's just how our, our world works. That's how, those are the people that we honor, and we see evidence of that all of the time. In our text, we see a radically different picture of greatness. In our text, we see our Lord, we see our King, we see our Messiah, our promised deliverer on a donkey. That seems to be such an absurd picture. But it's a picture of true greatness. And we're going to unpack that for a bit. First, so it's Lord, it's, it's a king on a donkey, but he is king. He is the king. True greatness is marked by majesty, uh, true majesty. And by the way, I, if you're looking for the handouts, I don't have them for you this morning, but we do have other pads of paper and, and pens and stuff if you want to follow along that way. Our first of two major points is true greatness is marked by majesty. The central figure on Palm Sunday is the king, this king that's on this donkey. We'll look at it, and uh, we see that in a couple different ways. Jesus' greatness is, is seen in the fact that Jesus does, in fact, come to us as the king, as our great king of God's kingdom. But time out. I ask this every single Palm Sunday. What's the deal with this donkey? I mean, that seems to be embarrassing. Like, who's your leader? Oh, he's that guy that just showed up in the limousine with a whole entourage. Who's, who's your king? Oh, he's that dude riding on that goofy donkey. You'd be like, oh. you know, couldn't we get like a helicopter or something? So, is this story about humility? Well, yes, but it's more than that. Um, to understand the donkey, we've got to look at this within this picture, a king on a donkey, within the context of the big, overarching story. 
okay? The scripture's filled with all kinds of stories, but from cover to cover, it is one story, one story. And, and it's in this story that you find your identity because you are a part of that story. Do you view yourself as a part of this story? Is that where you get your primary identity as, as, as a part of God's people in this one story? You are a part of that. It's important for us to remember. Now, your story, my story, opens in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? And they have greatness, and they're living with God in his presence, and they share in his greatness. But they wanted their own greatness, and so they rebelled, and they lost all greatness, along with the rest of us. So, have you ever wondered why you long for greatness? Maybe you think that you don't. Do you long to be great at something? If you want to be great at something, you're longing for greatness. We all do. We all look for it. And we either want uh, greatness in the eyes of the world, because how awesome would that be? Or if you're like, man, that's not me. I don't care about what anybody else thinks. Maybe you just want to have greatness in your own eyes. Why do we want that? I mean, if we're supposed to be nothing but a pile of evolved junk, why would we long for greatness at all? Well, Scripture holds the only answer I've ever seen. We were created for greatness. You were created for greatness. But we lost it. And we long to get it back. So we strive and grasp in all the wrong place and all the wrong ways. But underneath all that is the truth that you're created for greatness. We all know we lost it. And so we're striving for it because we want it back. After the great fall of, human, uh, of humankind, what we see in Genesis 3.15 is the great promise. God promises to send someone who will deliver us from sin, who will deliver us from death, and to restore us to true greatness. And so the Old Testament is filled with promises and previews of, of this deliverer who will defeat the enemy and deliver God's people from bondage and oppression and restore us to the presence of God and his greatness. And so we read stories about Moses and Joshua and Deborah and Gideon and Samson and, and David. And they all point to this deliverer, this Messiah, this king who is to come. And the Old Testament prophet Zechariah foretells our Messiah's arrival in his book, chapter 9, saying that the Messiah will put an end to war. The Messiah will proclaim peace to all of the nations. Our Messiah will set his people free. Our Messiah will restore us to true greatness. And then he tells us how we are going to recognize this Messiah who's going to do all of that. And he writes in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and having salvation lowly, and riding on a donkey. 
on Palm Sunday, he fulfills that prophecy. Jesus of Nazareth is our promised king, and he has come to us to make good on the promise made back in Genesis 3.15. And so the people understand that, and there's a crowd following him, and, and this crowd, they heard about his miracles, like, like raising Lazarus from the grave, and, and they're marching in to Jerusalem with Jesus, and they're spreading out their cloaks their, and, and branches in, in his pathway before him, and when the great crowd that was in Jerusalem for the Passover, a second crowd, when they hear about this, they go out and to meet. They go out to meet him, and when the two crowds come together, uh, they burst into celebration and, and using the words from Psalm 118, and the whole crowd is shouting Hosanna, which means save or save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Our king is finally here. They're proclaiming him as the promised messianic king that they've been looking for, longing for, waiting for, who's come to set his people from their oppressors. And they thought that meant to deliver them from the Roman oppressors. It's kingdom of man thinking. Not only does Jesus enter Jerusalem as king, but secondly, he enters as Lord, the Lord. Jesus comes to us as the Lord. So, the next part of our story, we see that Jesus sends his disciples to commandeer a ride. Now, Tommy here just got a brand new Harley. It's probably parked out front or was last week and the week before that, not here today. It's a beautiful bike. Now, if I broke in to your garage, or you left it, maybe you left your garage door open, and I threw my leg over your Harley, I started it up and was pushing out of the, out of the garage, I think it would only be natural for you to say, hey, what are you doing with my Harley? And I would say, the Lord has need of it. And you'd say, okay, go for it, <laughs> right? So these disciples show up to get this donkey, and the owners say, what are you doing with our donkey? And the disciples said, the Lord has need of it. And they said, oh, okay, go for it. There's recognition that King Jesus has a claim on everything. The scriptures promise that the Messiah is the Lord. John the Baptist, quoting the prophet, uh, Isaiah the prophet, proclaims, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, our, here's the deal. Here's what we have to remember. Our situation was so absolutely desperate that, that we could not do anything about it. Only God can save. And the promises are so great, only God can fulfill those promises. 
And Zechariah the prophet said, On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God. In the day of salvation, the weakest among us will be like King David. And what will the king be like? He'll be God himself. God came to earth in Bethlehem, lying in a manger. God entered Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. True greatness is marked by majesty. And second, true greatness is marked by humility. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the triumphant king, not on a war, or not in a war, on a war horse, but on a donkey. A donkey is a humble animal. An- I just said aminal. <laughs> I blame my wife. Long story. That's always a healthy thing for a preacher to do is blame his wife from the pulpit. <laughs> the donkey is a humble animal. I mean, to insult someone, you could call them a donkey or something equivalent to donkey. Why did Jesus come to us in humility? Well, he came to us in humility because he came to us to die for us. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because his people have rejected him. They rejected their God. They rejected the Lord of their covenant. And and the covenant calls for their judgment. But instead... God himself comes to us not to bring us judgment, but to bear our judgment. Zechariah said, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Jesus comes to us to enforce the blood of the covenant by taking our judgment upon himself, by shedding his blood, and it is only by his blood that we are redeemed. So he comes to us, he enters Jerusalem in humility, and the disciples don't get it. It's amazing how in the Gospel of Mark and Jesus' last days on earth, while he and the disciples are, are marching toward Jerusalem, toward this day, the disciples are, are constantly struggling with the concept of greatness, and Jesus is constantly teaching them over and over and over again about true greatness because it is so radically different than the world's view of greatness. And they struggle with that, and we struggle with that, just like them. At one point, 
Jesus just told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to die. And the next thing we read is that his disciples are, are, are arguing about who's going to be, which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, you know, he, he brings the kid, sets this kid uh, before them and says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then, later, the disciples see a man driving out demons in the name of Jesus, and the disciples rebuke this man because he's not one of them. Why did they rebuke him? Jealousy. And then later, parents are bringing these little children to Jesus, but the disciples rebuke them, saying, Jesus is too busy for your little rugrats. And this is right after Jesus put that kid in front of them, and he has to correct them again and say, let the little children come unto me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And immediately after, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. When he's unwilling to give up his riches to follow Jesus, Jesus says, it is really difficult. It is insanely difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are shocked. I mean, because rich people were awesome. They were great. If they can't get in, who, I mean, who can so Peter's like, oh, man, what am I going to do? He, so he wants extra credit, and he says, Lord, I, I, I left everything to follow you. That rich young ruler wouldn't, but, but I have. And Jesus is like, listen, Peter, it doesn't work that way. This is not a competition. And Jesus teaches him that the first will be last, and the last will be first. And then in Mark 10, I mean... <laughs> Just, are you seeing the pattern here? In Mark 10, Jesus again predicts his death, and immediately James and John come to him and say, Lord, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in glory. And then the other disciples hear about that, and they're like, what are you guys doing? What about us? And then they start arguing again because they wanted to be the greatest. And Jesus taught them that whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. And then a blind man named Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was walking by and he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples rebuke him and tell him to shut up. Why? Because he's one of those categories of people who, who don't really matter, who just don't count. But Jesus stops everything and he loves him and heals him and Luke adds that later at the last supper Jesus speaks of his death and again an argument broke out about which one of them is going to be the greatest what a bunch of dumb disciples we are just like them if you know your heart, if I know my heart, then we will know that we're just like them because our culture, our world has a 
totally, completely concept of greatness. It is in stark contrast to greatness in the kingdom of God. We get jealous when others succeed, or we feel hurt when we don't get the recognition that we think that we need, or, or we play the comparison game. Or You understand how disciples struggle? Because we do. And so here they go into Jerusalem, and they hear the, the people shouting, all excited, celebrations like this one-man parade. And they're thinking, and the disciples are thinking, this is awesome. This, this is it. They all recognize Jesus as, as Messiah. We're, we're finally going to triumph. It's happening. We're going to sit on his right and left. We can brush all the kids out of the way and all the people who don't count and tell Bartimaeus to quit yelling. And it's all so wrong. Dead wrong. Why? Because the cross is not understood. Because we don't get the cross. We don't understand the cross. What we understand, we understand seminars about how to be great business people. Oh, we understand seminars about how to be the, the greatest in our, uh, the greatest singer or the greatest in our craft, whatever it is. We understand seminars about how to make a lot of money. I mean, that we can wrap our, rain, our brain around it. But this cross business, give me something practical. It does not get any more practical than this. We just don't get it, so we overlook it. We don't see the greatness of the cross. We look around the greatness of the cross. and We exchange it for something else that we may or may not get. And that will let us down, rip us off, and others. The way the kingdom is established, the way that God's new city is built, is not by Jesus riding on a war horse. It's not by Jesus calling down 12 legions of, of angels and just wiping everything, everybody out. It is established by Jesus showing the love of God by giving his life as a ransom for many. You know... All these years still. The disciples did it then. And as disciples, self-proclaimed Christians do it today. When we think about making a difference in the world, we think politically instead of spiritually. That is kingdom of man thinking instead of kingdom of God thinking. And if you try to, to point it out to your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ or, or somebody tries to point it out uh, to me or whatever, we tend to be in denial about it and say, no, 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 I don't, I don't believe that. It's, it's all about the kingdom of God and all that. But functionally, and what we're most preoccupied with is kingdom of man thinking. If we're going to make a difference, we spend most of our time and our energy and our thinking and discipling in the area of politics than the area of the kingdom of God. 
of spiritual development that he, he calls for, for us. At City of Man thinking instead of City of God thinking, Jesus comes to pay the price for sin. Jesus comes to us to defeat the enemy, to conquer all of sin, death, destruction, and judgment, to deliver us from sin and death, and to restore us to fellowship with God. And for some reason, it just doesn't feel that important to us. It's not tangible enough. But it doesn't get greater than this. See, you know what? Jesus, we need to remember our identity, who we really are, and what Jesus calls us. He didn't say, you are Americans. He didn't say, you are Democrats. He didn't say, you are Republicans. He didn't say, you are conservatives or, or you are, are, are liberals. He said, you are a city set on a hill. You're the new Jerusalem. You are the new city. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is your identity. That is your, 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 your primary identity in this world, in this life. Citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, if we really got that, how would it affect the way that we live out our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? How will we live as the new city of God here in our city? It looks completely different than if we live in the city of man. Not just a little bit different. Like TV shows, when you watch them, you can tell that they were filmed in Canada. They always just look a little bit different. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's a much bigger difference than that. It's radically, radically different. In America, when we, again, when we look to making a difference, city of man thinking primarily looks to politics. City of God thinking primarily looks to the gospel and God's kingdom and then how that gets played out in the resources that he's given to us, whatever it is. And here's, here's what I've figured out. Most people, including Christians, are, one, are part of one polarized group or the other. Okay? And I've also learned that both polarized groups will... will resist city of God thinking. I've seen it a million times. For example, when the shooting of Stephen Clark happened this last week when he was killed, there was the usual polarized political debate it swirls around those tragedies. And predictably, people fell into and took up the arms, so to speak, in their respective polarized group. 
and a, a pastor friend of mine posted something that both political uh, polarized groups strongly disagreed with for different reasons, but they both disagree. In light of the shooting of Stephen Clark, he wrote, Jesus intends to tear down every unjust and oppressive structure and system in every artery and avenue of creation. He laid down his life and rose again to inaugurate the kingdom and create new humanity, a humanity on the side of truth and justice and mercy. One polarized group said, oh, you must be part of this other polarized group. And the people in this polarized group said, oh, you must be on this other polarized group. That's what happens when you are committed to kingdom of God values. You get accused of being in the other group, in your enemy's group. That should be expected. That is why Jesus says the world will hate you. Don't be afraid of that. Being God's new city means that together we live out a completely, totally alternative uh, approach to life and especially greatness. For example, we will not be impressed by rich people and their riches. We will not be uh, impressed by uh, business people and their business success. We, we will not uh, be uh, impressed with the majority and the influence that the majority has and the acceptance that the majority has. We will be impressed by the people that the majority, the world says, don't count, are people who are unwanted. Children, poor, handicapped, refugees, elderly, homeless. And we will value them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these and because we have much to learn from them. And we will be willing to serve others in lowly ways and unseen ways. And man, let me tell you something. Many of you are doing that. And I'm tempted to name some names, but I'm not going to do that this morning. You know who you are. And my prayer is may your tribe increase. And if we get this, we will zealously worship the king on a donkey. We will zealously proclaim loyalty to King Jesus and his kingdom and his kingdom values above anything and everything else. And we will worship him and we will join the children in singing Hosanna because greatness in God's new city is Jesus. Jesus is the star of the story. He is the most powerful man in the world. And we praise him for being our true king. And the only way we 
can be God's new city in San Diego is to understand the cross and value the cross. If, if, if that doesn't stir your heart, then, then you're not seeing it, you're missing it, and you need to pray. The Holy Spirit opens your heart, opens your eyes to see it. And there are two things that constantly trip us up when it comes to, to greatness, and one is our pride. We're the ones who have things figured out. We're the ones that other people should be like because we're the ones who are so exceptional. We're the ones who belong on the world stage. We want to be the star. We deserve the spotlight. We deserve the applause. We deserve the glory and the respect. The other side of that is insecurity. We're desperately trying to convince ourselves that we're not losers. We're striving to be someone of significance, maybe you know, in the world of other in the eyes of the world, or or even just maybe our own eyes. Pride and, and insecurity. Let me ask you, which one is it that you struggle with? Is it pride? Or is it insecurity? Or are you like me? And it's both. I see a few heads nodding. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're rejecting this and you're defensive. That usually means that you're just self-deceived. Usually points that there's a pride issue there. And humility would lead us all to believe, God, show me what I'm looking to other than you. Because it's only the cross that can change you. Your hope is not worldly greatness and being great at something that the world values. Only the cross can change you. Only the cross is your hope. And what the cross does is that it, it, it replaces your pride with humility because what the cross says about you is that this is what the cross says. This is what God thinks about your greatness that you are so helpless that nothing less than the death of God the Son could save you. And the cross replaces your insecurity with confidence, true confidence, because the cross says to you, Look at the cross. This is how much God values you. God loves you and has given his life for you. Now you have, now you have, because of the cross, you have true significance, you have true greatness in Christ. And it does not get any better than that. So let me close by encouraging you as you head out and you face the week. And throughout the week, if you're tempted to think of greatness and value greatness defined by the city of man, remember the cross. Look at it through the lens of the cross and you see how truly weak and insufficient it really is. It is the cross that will turn your thinking about greatness upside down because if you get the cross, the cross will convince you in your heart of hearts that the way that you find life is to lose it. The way to be first is to be last. The way up is 
down. And the greatest is the servant of all. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, um, uh, God, I pray that you would forgive us for so being so loyal to defend our idols and our false identities. The things that we look to to make the world a better place or our lives a better, a better place, more so and above looking to you and your kingdom. God, we know that you, you work through different things and, and organizations and, and, um, uh, and, and then we end up looking to those things to be our, our salvation and salvation of the world rather than to you. And we see it when we become uh, so incredibly uh, distracted with those things and we are not preoccupied with King Jesus and his greatness and his kingdom and his kingdom values and how to live out those kingdom values out of love and loyalty to Jesus. God, the, the flow, the powerful flow, the powerful current of our, our culture sweeps us up so easily. And we think that we're going against the current if we're going against people we disagree with. But in reality, we're still just going with the flow. God, I pray that you would enable us to be drawn King Jesus and, and his kingdom and that it would be your kingdom that defines us as a counterculture. God, I pray that you guard our hearts against the current of our culture and their various competing groups. Help us to look at all of it through the lens of your gospel. King Jesus, who lived for us and died for us and is establishing and advancing his kingdom and that you've chosen us to be loyal to King Jesus first and foremost and above all. And give us the courage to do it. When the world considers us to be fools or naive, God, I pray that who you are and what you've done for us would be so real to us that you would make us fearless because our love for King Jesus and his kingdom is so strong. And love casts out all fear. Stir within our hearts a loyalty to you. We pray these things in your name.